Perhaps some of you here have read H.G. Wells' short story, The Country of the Blind. Has anyone ever heard of that story? Has anyone ever heard of H.G. Wells? Okay. All right, good. In this story, and I hope I abbreviate it well, it's, it is a short story. It took about 45 minutes this week to read it. Um, it's about a mountain climber who falls into a remote village in, in South America. And it's a very unique village, and its uniqueness was the fact that the entire village uh, of people had gone blind. In the story, the disease is spread to the entire village one by one and infects the, the newborns, and then each generation is then born blind. As they grow up blind, each uh, one of the other senses they have then sharpens. And by the, the, the time the last villager who had sight has died, they have fully adapted their village to live without sight. There's no windows on their homes. There's, their walkways have raised edges, and they can meet at night just as easily as day. Uh, there's no need for light to be installed in their homes. Darkness was their life, and they don't mind at all. And this mountain climber, as he, as he enters this village and, and learns about him, um, realizes he needs to get out of here, and he, he wants to leave. And he can't, though. The, 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 the cliffs in which he fell in are too steep. And he decides, well, maybe I'll, I'll lead the village, and that doesn't work either. As he talks to them, he talks about sight. He talks about looking for things. And this language is, is, is not understood by the people. And they don't understand words like seeing and looking. It had been wiped away from their understanding at this point. He does fall in love with a daughter of one of the villagers, but he's not allowed to marry her because his claims to sight and his words about seeing make him emotionally unstable as viewed by the, the villagers. They don't trust him. The, the story ends with the, the, the girl uh, pleading with him to allow the villagers to gouge out his eyes so he can become like them. And he tries to escape when he's successful. Wells' story leads you to believe that you can make any difficult situations seem normal. You can even make blindness seem normal and acceptable. The ninth chapter of the Gospel of John is about sight and blindness. This chapter also talks about suffering and sin. It speaks of darkness and light. It teaches us about belief and rejection. There are a number of issues that arise when you read John chapter 9. And I want you to remember as we read this that this actually happened. And when you're reading the Gospels, remind yourself, this, this actually happened. This is true. These are real people. This real issues. This really happened. And this morning, I want to explore John chapter 9, the entire chapter. It's one story. And there's four things I want you to notice as we walk through this chapter. First, we're going to notice the healing of the beggar. Second is the response of the neighbors. Third is the investigation of the Pharisees. And fourth, the blindness of the world. So there's a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to jump in here. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and following that, I'll pray. So will you follow with me as I read? As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to, them, said to him, 
go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he, so he went and washed and came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Shiloh and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. And they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called a man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Would you join me in prayer?
Father, we come before your throne this morning asking that you would teach us, that you would give us understanding as we look at this chapter. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be focused this morning upon you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us. God, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. May I step aside. May your people hear from you, from your word. I pray that we will come away different and changed this morning based upon your word, what your word says. May we understand it and apply it to our lives. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the healing of the beggar in the first seven verses. And the chapter begins with a dilemma. As Jesus is leaving the temple area, as we saw last week in chapter eight, he's avoiding death at the hands of the Pharisees. And he and the disciples now walk by a blind beggar. And a question arises from one of the disciples. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And in Jesus' day, it was widely accepted and thought that sickness was there because of personal sin. The rabbis taught that a child could suffer because of the parent's sin. Can you imagine the weight of that teaching placed on your back as a parent? And now it's true that the Old Testament, there was teaching of uh, that the sins of the parents would be passed on in the next generation. Exodus 20, verse 5 talks about it. It says, you shall now not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And this, this happens. This happens naturally. The, the result of sins of anger, of dishonesty, of substance abuse are passed on from parent to child along with the tragic consequences to those sins of rejection of God. The wickedness of one generation will seep into the next generation. The warning is clear in Scripture that our children will, will deal with the consequences for our poor and, and foolish decisions. But they don't pay for our sins in that regard. And Jesus responds to the disciples' question of verse 3. He says, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus exposes their, their wrong thinking. There isn't any direct link between suffering and personal sin. There's, also, there's always a, a focus and a purpose for our suffering. He could have looked backward to the cause of sin and pointed out the original sin of Adam and said Jesus chooses to look forward. You know, the issues of suffering will always be here until Jesus comes. We will always be dealing with the effects of suffering in our lives. There is some suffering, there is some consequences in our lives that, that are there to drive sin out. I mentioned this a, a number of weeks ago of Hebrews 12. It teaches this. Read, uh, listen as I read. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And then later on it says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so if, if we're in the midst of suffering, the, the first logical question is asked, is there, is there sin? God, is there something in my life I need to confess? And you're bringing correction in. 
But not all suffering is, is for correction. So don't leave here this morning thinking that Pastor Jeff thinks all suffering is just of sin. It's not. There's some of that corrective discipline, some of instructive. Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse, who pastored in Pennsylvania for a number of decades, has written a number of books. He talks about the process of constructive suffering in the life of a believer. And he's writing about a, a great artist, Cellini, who, who tells of his autobiography of how he, he felt, he says, how he stood before a block of marble that had been brought to Florence for him to form into a great statue. Several chapters are devoted to the design and creation of the work of art, which stands still in his native city as a great monument. And between the rough-hewn block of marble and the finished statue were all the love and care of the artist and the infinite patience of the releasing from stone, the vision of beauty which he saw before the work began. And thus the Heavenly Father is at work in the life of, of everyone, of all believers. And there's a difference between ourselves and a block of marble, however, and that we feel and can shrink from the strokes of which the divine sculptor would cut away the marble so that the likeness of Christ may emerge in our lives. And so whether it's corrective discipline or constructive discipline, the result is the same. It's always the same. It's always the glory of God. It's the glory of God. And when we read about it this summer when we looked at the book of Job, and we will see it in a number of weeks when we look at the life of Lazarus in John chapter 11, both of whom I'm sure received some corrective or constructive discipline in their lives. But in those two instances, their specific suffering was for, the God, for, for God's glory and his glory alone. And this blind beggar is here, Jesus says, not because of the sin of his parents or his personal sin, but so that the works of God might be displayed through him. Jesus continues in verse four, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, he says. And Jesus is imploring his disciples not to look backwards, but to look forward. There's ministry laid out before them. And, and there's an urgency in Jesus' words here. He says, we must work. Do you see the urgency that he has there? Folks, remember, when Jesus is saying this, there's just a number of weeks, weeks before he will die. He knows this, and there's urgency in his voice. There's weeks before he will go hang on the cross for them. And he says, time is limited. As long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, Jesus didn't cease to be the light of the world after his death, his ministry continued to be carried out by his disciples, and now even us. And yet the point is clear, that the light would shine most clearly and most brightly during Jesus' earthly ministry. And there needs to be urgency, not only for his disciples then, but for us today. This applies to us today. Colossians 4, 5 and 6 teach us it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's teaching for us right now, right today. And we need to, to look to serve God with a sense of urgency. You know, as he says in Colossians, to make the best 
use of our time. And as Christians, we, we dare not get caught up with things on earth that would distract our attention from the job that we have. A Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, and I'm reminded of this, I'm reminded of this quote very often. He says, and he's known for saying, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. I need that emblazoned right here in, my, in the pulpit. This could be it. I follow through. I, I'm faithful to the ministry. And that's the same for you where God has you. I pray that we'll be faithful in what God has called us to do and recognize and understand that time is short. But Jesus isn't done with the beggar. He continues there in verse six and seven. It says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The man born blind now has sight. Think about that. And he will never forget this day. Right? It'll be forever etched in his mind what happens this day. Can you imagine what experience it would have been for him? Born blind, never experiencing light. Never experiencing beauty and all. And now he sees. Darkness was all that this beggar ever experienced. He had no idea what green and blue and red and yellow were. He, he I'm sure, heard those things, but never experienced those things. A million glories of our creation was completely lost on him for years. And now he can see. The green grass in the springtime, the blue oceans in summer, the, the white snow in winter. All of this was hidden from him. And now, now I'm sure his eyes are experiencing overload. Overload. It's just shooting into his life now. He can see. This is life changing for this man. He can now see his mother's face. Instead of just touch her face, he can see it. He can see the, the face of joy, of excitement, finally. His life is changed. And we're going to see the impact of this miracle in this man's life. The second thing I want you to notice is the response of the neighbors. Verse 8 through 12. And when we get to this verse, it makes a significant change for John's gospel. For the last four chapters, John 5, 6, 7, and 8, Jesus was the one on trial. He was the one that was answering all the questions. Now it's changed. Who's on trial now? The beggar. He will enter a trial here for the rest of this chapter. Look at me in verses 8 following. The neighbors, and I want you to notice something as I read this. Look at the questions that the neighbors have. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how 
were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, that man. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I, I, I do not know. Now given sight, I can imagine this man directly going to his parents' house to celebrate what has happened in his life, this freedom. I mean, there's no point for him to go back to the street and beg, right? He has sight. And the neighbors are out there as he's, I'm sure, walking home excited. They only know of their neighbor's son who was blind since birth. And here is this man calling out to his parents. They're probably thinking, did they have another son? Didn't tell anyone? Who is this guy? Can you imagine the confusion in the neighborhood? Who are, who, who are you? And the man answers, I am the man. I am the man that used to beg. And their, their further questions lead to a, a natural, normal question. How did this happen? And he, he tells them a story that this man, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. I can almost imagine them saying, is that it? That's all it took? It would seem even in this moment that this man, this blind beggar, doesn't really even know who this man Jesus is. As you walk through this chapter, even if you heard me read it, you, you, you notice that his understanding of who Jesus is grows. Even the words that he uses about who he is, description. As we said in the past, through, through the Gospel of John, there are signs that Jesus performs that, that point to deep spiritual truths. And so far, if you've been keeping track, there have been five signs that, that Jesus has made throughout this Gospel. And after each sign, it is followed by a discourse, a teaching. Sometimes it's preceded to explain the meaning of the sign. If you remember way back in chapter 2, we saw a sign as Jesus turned water into wine. And then in chapter 3, Jesus teaches Nicodemus the need for new birth. And in chapter 4, the second sign is Jesus healed the nobleman's son. And later in the chapter, Jesus teaches about the water for life. And the third sign connects to this one in, in similarity. In, in John chapter 5, where Jesus heals the, the lame man laying beside the pool. And in the second half of the chapter, Jesus teaches that he is a divine son. And the fourth sign was the, the feeding of the 5,000 from John chapter 6. And then teaches the people that he is the bread of life. And the fifth sign followed right after that when Jesus walked on water towards the disciples, which is then followed in, in Jesus in chapter 7, teaching them of the life-giving spirit. This morning, we have the sixth sign in the gospel of Jesus. That he heals a man born blind, and it's preceded to understand what he means in John chapter 8 that we've covered the last few weeks, that he is the light of the world. There's one more sign that Jesus will perform in John's gospel We'll look at that in a few weeks in, in John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus and the, and the teaching of what that sign means is preceded in John chapter 10 of the great shepherd. All of Jesus's ministry and teaching was on purpose. Jesus was not flying by the seat of his pants. He had a reason for what he was doing. He had significant meaning, not only for the original audience, but for us today. 
So we've seen the healing of the beggar and the response of the neighbors. Third, I want you to notice the investigation of the Pharisees. Investigation of the Pharisees. So the discussion with the neighbors ends with them bringing the Pharisees, or bringing him actually to the Pharisees to, to question the man. And John gives us some, some understanding of the setting in which this has happened in verse 14, that this, this healing happened on the Sabbath. We've seen this before, haven't we? It's an important question, important statement. So the leaders call this man into their assembly to give an account of what had happened. Verse 15, so the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. You know, as the beggars on trial, they began of how he received his sight. They asked these questions. And I love the simplicity of the, of the man at this point. He's really straight and to the point. You notice that? He put mud on my eyes. I washed, I see. He, he's He's direct. He's not wasting any more time with these questions. The discussion of what happened, as you notice through the chapter, has gotten shorter now and the description of what happened. And there's two responses from these men. Jesus is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And the second response is Jesus possibly is from God because a sinner couldn't do this. And there's a division that rises up between these Pharisees. Some of these men seem to be softening and yet others are hardening in their response to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once remarked, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. The Sabbath had become an issue for them, and a man born with blindness was healed on the Sabbath. A mighty act of God was performed. But the blind-hearted enemies of Jesus see no beauty in what took place. These so-called wise teachers misunderstand the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath. It was a day set aside for the good of man to be sanctified and kept holy, but not added to, and then become a stumbling block for people. To heal a sick man was not a breach of the Sabbath day in which God had set up. And finding fault with Jesus... They are exposing their ignorance of their own law given to them by God, which in his law forbade calling it a sin and saying you cannot add any more commandments to this law. That's what they did. They counted Jesus as a sinner because he broke their law for the Sabbath. He did so in three ways. First, Jesus spit on the ground and made a ball of clay and they defined making clay as manual labor. Second, even though they allowed healing on the Sabbath, they forbid it in cases where the patient could wait. Meaning, if you had a toothache, you needed to wait. If you fell and hurt your ankle, you needed to wait. So if it's not serious, they won't do healing. Third, Jesus violated the law by applying saliva to the eyes of the man. So in their hearts and their minds, he is a sinner. He's broken their law. Still others are not sure, and there's division. 
Some believe he's a sinner because of what he did on the Sabbath, and others think that he is more. He's more than just a man. And so what do they do? They turn and ask the former blind man. I find it interesting that they ask him what his opinion is. I believe it's a sign of their confusion to answer, who is Jesus? And so they ask him, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, and he said he's a prophet. If you notice, it's the same answer that the Samaritan woman gave about Jesus. A prophet would most likely have been the highest title that the man knew to give Jesus. This did not satisfy the Pharisees. They don't believe that he was actually blind. They asked the beggar, this man, to bring in his parents so they could question them. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And they answer that their son, yes, he was born blind, but they refuse to give a clear answer to the second question is how he now received sight. Instead, they push the responsibility onto the son to answer those questions. And why the refusal? Well, John fills us in in verse 22. It says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So therefore, the parents said, ask him. Ask him. He's old enough. They're fearful of being put out, fearful of being expelled from the synagogue. The Jewish leaders had already come to the conclusion that anyone who publicly confessed Jesus to be the Christ was to be removed from the synagogue, which means that they were removed from the, the social and the religious life of Israel. And so this was probably very frightening to many people, especially this mom and dad, who most likely didn't have very much money. That's why their son was a poor beggar at the corner. And so the Pharisees turned back to the son after being properly chided by mom and dad. And they begin their second question. And the back and forth that we see with the man and the Pharisees becomes very intense. The more pressure the leadership puts on the man to denounce Jesus, the more the man speaks out in defense of Jesus. They charge him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And the phrase, give glory to God, is their call, their pressure on him to answer honestly. It's like saying, remember, God sees you, God hears you, so you better tell the truth. In verse 25, he answers, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Can you hear the assurance in his voice as he answers their question? I know one thing. I was blind and now I see. I was once filled with darkness, unable to see the sun, the colors of life around me, but now I see. What a contrast of this man and the Pharisees. One was once blind, the others are still blind. The contrast of what they know. They know, the Pharisees know that Jesus is a sinner. They know Jesus is not a prophet. They know Jesus is not God. That he's just a man. What does this beggar say? Whether he's a sinner, I, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. 
Shortly after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg on October 31st, so that's a good reason to celebrate that day, the Protestant Reformation was launched by his preaching that justification was through faith alone, and it was directly aimed at the Roman Catholic Church who denied this truth. And through his preaching and teaching, it would lead him to other high-level debates. And he often admitted that he was wrong about certain things. Martin Luther was wrong about some things. He was just a man. He didn't have all the right answers sometimes. But he knew he was right about salvation through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and for God's glory alone. And there he stood. And not only did he emerge victorious in his pursuit of what the Bible preached, but his faith and his understanding grew too. How was Luther able to stand? Because not only did he know what he did not know and also what he did know, but he also knew how he knew it. And the same is true for the man born blind. He didn't know everything about Jesus, but what he did know was that he was blind and now he sees. But his accusers are already hard-hearted and they persist in questioning him. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And they're grasping here, right? And he answers them, verse 27, I have already told you, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man... We don't know where he comes from. They're not satisfied with the answers this man is giving. They're looking for another explanation for this. And this man is not biting. He's clearly losing patience with the whole proceeding. And, and what's surprising is that he doesn't hold back at all. He, he must not have inherited his, his cautious timidity from his mom and dad. You don't see it there at all. And said he turns the table on them and asks if their question is really to find out how or is it because they too want to follow Jesus? You know, talk about lighting a room on fire. This is what this man does. And the Pharisees, they're livid at this proposal. Says they reviled him, meaning they hurled abuse at him. This is verbal abuse by the spiritual leaders of the day. And their response is to polarize everyone's commitment. You're either Jesus or Moses. You're either against us or with us. They didn't realize that Moses would condemn them too. They might have known that God spoke to Moses, but they obviously forgot what God said to Moses. Why would the Pharisees so stubbornly reject Jesus despite his saving power? And the reason is that they did not want that kind of savior. They didn't want that kind of savior. They resented what it implied about them. They wanted to be affirmed by God on their own merits, not forgiven through a savior. 
And the same issue is still present today. People object to Jesus today for the same reason. They don't want to be told they're a sinner. They will reject that notion. I'm a good person. I go to church. I give to church. I give to charities. I give my time. What do you mean I'm a sinner? They resent it. I mean, the fact that people should confess their sins before God, admitting their, their need for a Savior that they can't do anything, offends people. It must have been shocking for this blind man to stand there and hear these men say that they don't know because they had gotten so used to saying that they knew something. And the blind man takes advantage of their ignorance and begins to preach at them. He says, verse 30, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I mean, at this point, he's lighting them up. They have no response to what he's saying. And his increasing boldness and, and mocking wit comes from not because of spiritual maturity over the healing, but simply because of common sense. And what he finds remarkable here is not his own belief, but the unbelief of the officials. And he calls into question their own understanding of what have happened to him. And the sad thing about this whole situation is that the healing is completely lost in this discussion. They completely pass over what just transpired. I mean, think about what just happened. The man was born blind. His eyes were unable to function. They're not just damaged eyes, they're defective eyes. They did not work, and Jesus does a creation miracle in his life. And the beggar knows this. His parents know this. Jesus knows this. But the officials, they deny it. They ignore it. If Jesus was a sinner, if Jesus was one that mocked God, a guy who was opposed to God, he couldn't have done this miracle. This is common sense for the man and is ignored by the officials. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, blind, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. A man born blind had no hope for sight. If Jesus was not from God, he would not be able to create at all. You know, this man is presenting a strong case for the divinity of Jesus Christ. And what's the response? They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? Yeah, see the blindness, the hardness of these men? They've had enough of this man. They cast him out. They dismiss him from the presence of them and from the synagogue. And in this final pronouncement of this man, we see the blindness of the Pharisees. It leads me to my last point this morning. 
the blindness of the world. This passage ends with the glorious salvation of this man. Jesus, who's not been around for most of the chapter, finds the man who's now been cast out of the synagogue and approaches him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say we see, your guilt remains. I can't help but think of all the opportunities that these Pharisees had to understand, to engage, to ask questions of Jesus and to believe in him. And we see chapter after chapter after chapter where they're confronted with the truth of this life and their response is one of stubbornness and foolishness. They're so captive to their sin of self-righteousness that they can't even hear or see the one that they're longing for. They had replaced their search for Messiah for a search for their own power to sustain that. And they continue to charge Jesus with being a sinner throughout this chapter. And what's their reasoning? That Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. You know, I wonder if the point of Jesus healing on the Sabbath was the calling card that he used to cry out to their darkened hearts. You know, he continues to perform God-exalting miracles and signs on the Sabbath as if to say, hey guys, look. I am the one that you've been searching for. Jesus does nothing opposing scripture by healing the Sabbath. Nothing. And they should know this, but instead they ignore it because this man dared to challenge their faulty thinking. He challenges their supposed power. They don't know what they don't know. And how often... Do we fit into this category? Often do we continue through this life thinking that we have learned it all, unwilling to be challenged. As I sat at my dining room table last night, finishing my sermon, searching my mind for an appropriate way to to bring this to bear this morning, and naturally it landed in my own life. How many times I've rejected the help of others to correct my thinking. Instead, I'd rather sit comfortable in my ignorance. Has this happened to you? I mean, answer honestly, because I'll ask your family. (laughs) How often do I believe I'm correct only to spend a few moments with my dear wife, Katie, and in her gracious spirit, I'm challenged to reconsider my viewpoint. And it's, folks, I'd love to say this is deep theological matters or even others, but it's, it's not. It's simple things of life. It happens, it happens way too much. I won't share more. How many times has it happened in my ministry, in my, in my life here professionally, 
when I think I have the right vantage point and, a, and, a, and the right view of a certain issue only to have a brother or sister challenge me to think differently and consider there possibly could be a misconception or an error in my thinking. Now, sometimes admitting what you can't see is the way that you can start to see. Now, listen to this verse, Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That stings. I mean, ever left the, the city area, you know, all the lights, and you go into the open, wide open area, whether it's um, a field, and there's no lights out there, and you can see the stars clearly. And maybe you're there with a friend or a family member, and they're looking up to the sky, and they, what they see are, are constellations. And you're thinking, I heard that once in school, but I follow sports teams, not constellations. And they look, and they're, they're, they're just in awe of what they're seeing. They're pointing out constellations. You see that one, and they turn to you, and, you have, and they say, do you see that? You have two choices in that moment, okay? You can first say, yeah, I see it. And you lie because you really don't see it. Or secondly, you can say, I don't see it. I'm not sure what you're pointing at. And most likely, they'll, they'll, they'll start to point and say, see, now look at this. And they'll point at stars and they'll start walking through the constellation. And, and, and you'll, get, you'll get it. And they're teaching you in that moment. Sometimes admitting that you can't see is the way that you can start to see. This is the Christian life, if we're humble. If we have humility in, in how we think and how we act and what we say. And I'm thankful for my family and friends here at church who are in a position in my life to share with me things that I might not see in my own life. And this is one of many reasons why you want to join and be a part of a local church. And frankly, as your pastor, this is one of the reasons that I feel sorry for those of you here that don't want to get involved in a church family. I truly do feel sorry for you. You don't invite people into your life. You and your foolish pride are trying to follow Jesus all alone. And I'm not saying you can't do that by God's grace. I'm saying that he didn't set it up that way. And you have chosen a very rocky path instead of the rich fields that are right here in front of you. I'm thankful for the people in my life that encourage me in my walk with the Lord who are bold enough to say, Jeff, I don't know if you're thinking correctly there. Gracious enough to come and maybe they endure my poor reaction that but love me enough to pursue it. And I'm thankful for the ones that are walking with me. These religious rulers didn't have that. They're dominated by their position and their arrogant views go unchallenged. Arrogance rarely allows the light to enter because arrogance doesn't even admit that there's darkness to begin with. These arrogant leaders are the blind ones that Jesus talks about in verse 41. 
Those who go blind are the ones who do not realize their need. Those who receive sight are the ones who understand they're in darkness. These leaders were confident in their self-righteousness. They were self-satisfied men. And they say, we see. And Jesus says, no, you don't. The beggar, he's a different sort. He, he knew his need. He, he knew he was in dark. As we've seen in these last few verses, he knew he was in dark physically and spiritually. And how many, can you imagine how many people passed by this man on the street and looked at him, looked down at him with pity and asked the same question that these disciples say. Is this man a sinner or his parents? And while he didn't know whose, whose sin and kindness or caused his blindness of his parents or his, he did know that he was a sinner. Was he self-sufficient? No. Was he proud? No. Well, what would he be proud of? His status, his wealth, his knowledge, his home? He didn't have any of those things. He was a beggar. Ironically, though, it could have happened, just so you know. He could have said, I'm the best beggar out there. I own this corner. I don't need no stinking eyesight. I own this. He could have said that. But that's not the man we read in this chapter. He understands who he is in light of Jesus Christ. Jesus ends by saying the, the way of seeing is the way of blindness, understanding our, our need for Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, it's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Where are you this morning, friend? Are you denying your blindness? Admitting what you can't see is the way to begin to see. By nature, we're like the Pharisees here. Jesus wants us to see ourselves in the story. I mean, this really happened, but he wants us to see this. He wants to, for us to understand our blindness. When we recognize our need for Christ, we can see hope through his sacrifice for us on the cross. Do you remember the story that I shared at the beginning? We live in a culture that has gotten used to blindness. In fact, they prefer it. They are accustomed to it. And when we talk about our sight of seeing our need for Jesus, they don't understand. They don't want to understand. They're spiritually blind and in darkness. And if you're here this morning in that way, your story doesn't have to end there. There is an escape from the country of the spiritually blind. There's a way out. You don't need to spend your life as a spiritual beggar in spiritual blindness. 
Friend, if I've described you this morning, I want you to know that I've been praying for you. You may not know your name, but I've been praying for you. Praying that God would open your eyes to see for the first time the light of the world. That you would see him and you would understand. And you would believe. You would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this challenging chapter in your word. The reminders that it brings to our hearts and our minds as we read it and study it. Father, I, I thank you that I can say I was once blind, but now I see. And God, I thank you that I am surrounded in this room this morning with others that have said the same thing. That remember, and remember living in darkness, being blind, and now they can see. God, help us to never grow tired of remembering this, of reminding ourselves of this. Pray for those here this morning, God, that they still dwell in darkness. They deny their blindness and the guilt remains. I pray that you would humble them this morning, God. I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would give them salvation, understanding that have belief and trust in you. I pray that today will be etched in their mind forever because they will come to know you and trust in you. Father, help us as we leave this place this afternoon to go and to share your gospel, to be bold about that, to recognize we go into a dark world of those that are steeped in their blindness, but Father, we go not with our words, but with your word. And the power resides in your word. Remind us of this, God. May we not grow weary in our service to you. And may you be honored and glorified in our lives as we serve you. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.